0: Be quiet Chris, be quiet
1: uh, So this is a bit of a, an interesting episode I don't know if Chris has got any jokes Because I've just literally called him uh, Before he goes on his holiday and said we've got to No, I
2: have, I've got none, I've got nothing
3: Oh well, our fa- your fans, <laughs> your joke fans, will just have to wait another week or two. That
1: says down a star. Ready, with no, point yeah. five. I think I know, we can go two point five. Two point 5. five as well. Uh, will this
2: one be downloaded nineteen thousand times, Jeremy? Yeah, I
1: think it'll be less because China's not interested in Brand Love Twenty Twenty One.
2: We thought we had nineteen thousand downloads in one day. Turns out we didn't. Yeah, turns like, out surprisingly, somebody in
1: China, all over China, was into Brand Love Twenty Twenty One. So for the four of you that are listening, <laughs> I like it. It's a very intimate medium. It
2: is. We, have, we just need to
1: find out who they are and then we can, can get talk them to them in. personally. <laughs> come, come <in>. <laughs> <laughs> are I'll, we recording at the moment? Yeah, we are. We are. I like all the story <laughs> about that. I'm going to hit this button. Welcome to the Good Roundup. Good is a brand consultancy based in the United Kingdom, and from time to time we get together and we talk about brand. And today we, we are talking even more about brand, and even know, more about, about brand, even <laughs> more about brand, with someone else. <laughs>
3: Turns out we didn't need the pre-pod jokes because
1: Stuart's the real good. live joker. I think yeah. I, find I was doing three things at the one time and one of them had to give and it turned out it was talking.
2: <laughs> it was language.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, even more about brand. Even today. more
1: about brand than we usually branding talk about.
3: We have a different perspective. We We've got a client side perspective head. this yes, time, we do. don't we?
1: And who wants to introduce the person that we're talking to?
3: Julie. Today? I will introduce the person we're talking okay. to today. So we have a client joining us for a podcast today, our next client, I should say, uh, Ryan Schultz, who we worked with in his last couple of roles at Stratasys, who one of our 3D printing uh, who are a client of a 3D printing company, and Honeywell, who have been a long-standing client. And Ryan uh, kindly agreed to jump on and go with a go the good brand podcast. But he spent a lot of time working specifically in the B2B space and B2B tech. Um and so we wanted to invite him in and just get a client-side perspective on some of the things that we regularly, we talk about from a, a brand challenge point of view. So I wasn't on, on it.
1: I was too busy working. I was I was pushing the business forward and it was just Julie and Chris having a chat with them. So here he is. Dialing
3: in from sunny Florida, Florida. Yep. no less. Yep. Yes. And, uh, Golf course. Yep.
1: So and uh, let's hand over to the, the, the interview.
0: Oh, Hello. it is a pleasure to be here. Obviously a big fan of you guys and what you do, and one of my favorite topics in the whole world to talk about is brand. Of course it is. So I'm delighted to be on the podcast today and do a little pontification on on all things brand. I spent my entire career in marketing, mostly in the strategic marketing side, and I call it capital M marketing, right? So a lot of times when people talk about marketing, they they think of Marcom or they think of um, more tactical marketing, which is obviously very important. But I pride myself on doing what i call capital on marketing which is brand channel management segmentation market research all the kind of the big meaty stuff that, that you learned in, in business school i've my career's bounced all over the place largely in big global B2B industrials. I spent just under nine years in 3M company, the makers of Scotch tape and post-it notes for those who might be unfamiliar <laughs> and that's a really unique company because they have B2B, they have B2C, they sell to governments. They basically have 80,000 products and are sold in literally every end market. So a great place to cut one's teeth. From there, I went to Honeywell, which I had the pleasure of first working with good the first time. And I supported their global smart homes and smart buildings business. So, so, a deep dive into the IoT space long before it was called IoT. Some mm. great war stories there. Mm-hmm. From there, was recruited away to a, a big lighting company called Acuity Brands out of Atlanta. But they acquired into the smart building space and bought a company in Montreal, Canada. So, I got to go even further north of where I'm from, Minnesota, which is hard to believe, and go spend even more colder in Montreal,
3: sometimes. Fantastic. Colder.
0: Even colder and a lot more snow, but phenomenal experience. And then came back to the United States to work at a company called Stratasys, which is the world's largest 3D printing company. Some really interesting kind of brand, I would say challenges and opportunities there, which Julie and team helped us um, tackle head on. And then from there, finally achieved my dream of ending up somewhere warm with low taxes. So I took a job at <laughs> a home warranty company of all places. You're probably thinking, what is... IoT have to do with home warranty. Well, we were peeling all the data off smart home devices to make new home warranty products and, and underwrite those coverages. It was really cool. And then finally, and then I'll pause and take a breath of air. A former colleague of mine from 3M reached out just over a year ago. He was running a company that was spun out of 3M. It was gobbled up by a number of other bigger companies, and they were looking to divest it. So he brought me in to help with the divestiture, which, which went through in May, which is really cool. So now I've worked with, Six acquisitions and one divestiture and done a lot of really cool stuff. And all of it touches a brand. Nice
3: one. That's And I think that's why, obviously, from our point of view, we talk a lot about, and like you say, with the bulk of your kind of expertise in that B2B space, I think it'll be interesting to, certainly from our, our perspective, to hear you know, your views on some of the challenges that we talk about from a from an agency in our idealistic little agency world that we operate in a lot of the time. Just to kick things off then, starting nice and broad, and you, you've touched on that a little bit, but just one of the things, one of the topics that we discuss a, a lot or have discussed a lot is just generally the kind of level, the understanding of brand within the B2B space specifically and maybe how that, that differs slightly from some of the kind of big B2C organisations. In terms of your experience, obviously across a number of different roles, is it, would you say is it's taken seriously? Do businesses in the B2B space genuinely and typically understand the role that the role and of, of brand and the value that a strong brand can ultimately deliver for the business and, and add to the bottom line?
0: So, so all, it's a great question. I think ultimately they think they do, but my experience is more times than not, they don't. So marketing, I think, as a profession it is really interesting because most of my career is in heavily engineering-based yeah. companies. And I think in those companies, there's almost a, a chauvinism towards engineers. Engineers are really smart. They can figure anything out. Marketing's easy. How hard can it be? So they come in and they're like, I understand brand. And we'll just say, we have some brand principles we'll put on the website and dust our hands off and, and move on to the real hard engineering stuff. And they don't really understand the role of brand or, or how it's important or more importantly, how it can drive business value and growth. Right. So if, in my mind, if you step back and ask what's the brand at the most fundamental level, it's ultimately a brand is source of supply, right? And I know that I remember a textbook when I was in business school, like they literally found clay pots that are 6,000 years old from the middle East that have written on the bottom, like this pot was made in the city of Ur, right? And they were simply just trying to say where they were made, but ultimately pots from one city had a better reputation for quality for whatever it is and other pots. And then that lives in the mind of those customers that have a preference. I think um, in the B2B space, it's interesting because there's, there's so many consumers. There's a lot of time and, and, and energy and effort spent on how do we resonate with these big con- groups of consumers, which is its own challenge. The opportunity to be space is, look, generally speaking, you have a few orders of magnitude, a lot fewer consumers than in the Mm. customers in the consumer space, right? Yeah. So There's a huge opportunity to get to know those customers really well, to understand their need states, to understand what they're trying to achieve as a business. And if you can understand those needs and build a brand around solving your customers' problems, there's tremendous value. And it's not just Most people wouldn't think of a consumer brand, Coke or Pepsi or Clorox or whatever, as as being a partner in their life or a partner enabling their success. But in the B2B space, if you build a strong brand and you get the right segment, target segments involved in that brand, you're absolutely seen as a customer for growth. And loyalty goes up and spending goes up and innovation goes up because you're tied hand in glove with what those customer needs are. And I think all of that can unleash growth in the business if people have that right mindset towards a b2b brand
3: that nice. is a great answer it's a very comprehensive could we just, answer we, we could
2: probably just close now
3: <laughs> i think there's tons <laughs> there's low there's tons of interesting things that you've just I touched on there that we can unpack. towards engineers yeah right. and that's actually so that was going to be one of my questions and i think again we've had a lot we've had quite a bit of experience working on this with you and you touched on it there in, in terms of engineering-led organizations, product-led organizations, and we see it particularly in the B2B space where, and you said it there as well, like it's about understanding how you're solving a specific customer's problem. And Often in those organizations, what we see from a communication point of view, from a messaging point of view, is that you get into this features war. It's, yeah, here's all our competitors, but this is... And you, as product, as engineers and as product specialists, those teams know the ins and outs of every single one of your products and every single one of competitors' products way better than a customer ever will. And it's really easy then to get down that rabbit hole of a checkbox of features rather than really defining and under where the underlying value is and, and communicating on that basis rather than the kind of the feature checklist. Is that fair?
0: Oh, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I'm trying to figure out where it starts. I'm sure you guys have seen it. I'm, I'm not going to name names, but I've been I've worked with a lot of companies where we have really brilliant engineers, a lot of times PhD level. And what they want is to work on PhD level problems, right? Yeah. And they go into a black hole and they want to push the boundaries of the technology with this mindset of, if we build it, they will come, right? When ultimately, if you take something like as, as complicated as 3D printing, for example, an industrial grade 3D printer is anywhere from a hundred thousand dollars north of a million dollars. There's all sorts of different materials. There's software you have to use to like design and print apart. And it's very complicated, but if you look at who are buying those printers. It's not PhD level engineers who have the time and wherewithal to like master this new technology, the material and the software. It's purchasing managers and operations engineers who have to make parts at scale oftentimes, right? They're interested in how do I get this part in the fastest, most cost-effective manner? And if you're going to take this engineering-led approach of our printhead moves the fastest, or we have the hottest, build chamber, all this feature stuff. If you can't translate that into how I get better parts faster and cheaper, yeah. you're just never going to win.
3: No, I was just going to say, I think that's spoiling it down to its simplest. And we, talk, Stuart says this a lot. Ultimately, how is it going to make me money or save me money? Exactly.
0: And, and, and I'm a firm believer too. And I, I know Apple is the most happy example you can give. But I believe in any sufficiently advanced technology, the basis of differentiation over time always becomes ease of use and simplicity. And the faster that in mature technologies, the faster that companies can get to that point, not just in brand messaging or communication, but in product design and bring the brand to life through the the products and more importantly, through the entire brand experience, which is delivery, which is support, which is aftermarket, which is everything those are the ones who go in and disrupt market. And I think it's very challenging for new to world innovators who cut their teeth with a new technology yeah. to make that pivot to, it doesn't have to be the best technology, it has to be the easiest to use. It, it's, it's very few companies can successfully make that pivot, right? And brand plays a critical role in making that
2: pivot. So Effectively, you're saying that the, the business doesn't understand its customer properly, doesn't understand what they want. Is that fair?
0: Yeah, I think there's three, I think there's three things that really fundamentally make this challenging. The first is engineering companies, people fall in love with the technology and they'll say, Hey, this attribute, again, I'll go back to 3d printing, our build chamber is hotter than anyone else's. And you're like, yeah, but so what (laughs) do you know how difficult of a problem that was to solve and we had to do all this engineering and bring all these materials and it's yeah, that's great. But if it doesn't solve a customer problem here, so first one is like falling in love with the technology. The second one is similar. It's falling in love with your product and not being honest about how your product competes with what else is in the marketplace, Mm. right? Because customers aren't looking to buy products, they're looking to solve problems. Mm. And oftentimes there's multiple ways to solve a problem. And I've heard this in every company I worked with, whether it's sandpaper from 3M saying we have the best sandpaper. Why? Because it's the grittiest. Okay. But you realize it's 10% grittier and five times more expensive. And I'm not saying that doesn't mean there isn't someone who wants to buy it. The key then is defining the application of that unique customer segment who has a need that needs 10% grittier sandpaper and is willing to pay five times more for it, yeah. right? <laughs> And then is, is the second piece. And the third piece is not understanding the role of not understanding the role of brand and the customer experience, right? You can have a, a fantastic product. But if you're not communicating the value, if you're not selling it to the right customer base who's solving the right problem, if you don't have good support, if you don't have good setup and delivery, you're not going to win.
3: And that's something we talked a lot about in Stratasys, wasn't it? Or, or in a number of places Absolutely. where it's that kind of the pre, during and post sales cycle and that you need to have kind of the brand touches all of those stages. And yeah, fine, product lives at the middle of that in terms of the kind of ultimately decision to buy product A over product B. But then what happens after that is also disproportionately important so much of the time in terms of, like you say, that service and support.
0: That's a superb example. And not to pick on Stratasys, they're, they're a superb company, obviously. Yeah, they're very good. But if you think of a 3D printer, it's a technical razor. It's, it's a quintessential razor and blades business model where the 3D printer is the handle and the materials that flow through are the blade, right? Yeah. But when I was there and we worked a lot with management to address this, was a lot of pressure. We'll sell more printers, sell more material. So you'd sell some printers to customers and move on and try to find more customers, to sell more printers to. When in my mind, you have to become more like Salesforce.com, where they have these customer success people who, when they sell a Salesforce deployment, they're going in, making sure people are trained, making sure people are using it, understanding additional modules, selling additional modules. Because what we found with 3D printers, if you can go in a year later, and if no one's using that printer, it's collecting dust, guess what? They're not gonna buy more materials. They're not gonna buy more printers. Yeah. So we start asking questions around, why aren't you using your printer? It's hard to use. Okay, we'll you give you more training, right? Or we don't understand, we need different materials. Oh, you didn't know we launched this material. Let me tell you about this new material. So there's a lot of handholding and support that goes on after sale to get people to successfully use your product, which not only makes them more successful as a customer, it makes you more successful as a business because you get that long tail of follow-on work.
3: And so why do you think it is so difficult to shift the business model or the focus of some of the business model to that kind of maintenance and I guess the post sales service and support. Is it to do with the way that product teams and sales teams are incentivized in terms of generating new leads and ops? Is it tenure of a CMO is too short? So it's about big wins rather than things that will potentially take longer to shift the needle. Is there, or I guess every business, every organization is different, but.
0: Yeah, but I think there's some common threads though. I think you're absolutely right. I think marketing, this is probably a topic for a whole other podcast. Marketing, I think, It doesn't do itself a favor. I think in the last decade or so, as long as I've been a marketer, marketing's been winnowed down to leads and ops and marketing automation. It's been more and more narrowly defined. You're Mm. at the expense of strategy and channel management and business model and and brand management the big, more meaty stuff. And the reason is That more marketing automation is easier to manage. I'm sorry, easier to measure. Measure. Yeah. So people naturally gravitate towards it. Are we getting more leads and offices quarter? Yay. We're winning, even though you're losing the war, right? Winning the battle losing the war. But I think on a more foundational level, especially for public companies, there's two issues, The, the quarterly pressure to perform in the very short term really gets in the way of business model disruption. And then pretty much every company I've worked at has tried to pivot from pure product to Either an IoT software-based business model, big plans, lots of resources, CEO championing it, all the stuff being done correctly, but it's really hard for them to get there because the implications on the P and L are radically different. When mm. you sell a high, and you're a publicly traded company, you're an ongoing concern. You have commitments, quarterly commitments to Wall Street, and you're very profitable. The shift to a software-based business model is a huge investment up front, often for years, where there's going to be no return. But if you do it right, you get very high margins on the back end. Guess what? No one, no public company can really bite the bullet for a 12 quarters to get to that better place, even though they know it's ultimately a better place. Mm. So I think there's almost structurally, it's very hard to disrupt yourself when you're a high margin product-based company.
2: And do you think that's true outside of the, we understand that working with publicly quoted businesses in the US particularly, that pressure is immense. Uh, is mm. it the same with privately held businesses is it is it I, because you, i think you're hitting a really good uh, uh, an interesting point that, that and something we have talked about a lot which is it does take a particularly special ceo to drive a recognition of the value of or an understanding of what brand can do in these types of businesses at all but is it doable and outside of the publicly quoted businesses
0: yeah i think the advantage for privately held companies is is they have more cover to move quickly and disrupt themselves it still takes that intestinal fortitude and it still takes that visionary leadership but i think that the i think the pitfall there is they lead with an aspect of the business the product the customer experience and they follow with brand yeah instead of when i said earlier at most fundamental level a brand is source of supply i think at the most mature level a brand is a statement of purpose and a bold vision of of who you are and what you aspire to be. And I think if there are companies who are looking to disrupt themselves and do something big and different, they should start with a blank piece of paper. They should use the brand as a unifying touchstone and a strategy to help employees, stakeholders, customers, others understand where you're going and what you want to be, and then use that as the guiding principle then to align the rest of the functions. So I think if you lead with brand, you're going to be much more successful than yeah. if you follow. Yeah.
3: And that's where we talk a lot about brand strategy being business strategy. And that's essentially that very point. Those, they're not two separate things. They're intrinsically linked. And like you say, a, a strong brand should lead mm-hmm. in the strategic and operational decision making that runs through the organization. But that has to come from, it has to come from leadership, doesn't it? It has to come from the top.
0: Yeah. So one, one of the things that I was very fortunate to work on early in my career was the, the chief marketing officer of 3M asked me to be on a project to look at the entire 3M brand, right? And for those, I, I think the brand's strong in the U.S., and they're obviously a global company. But 3M was the poster child for innovation literally for decades, right? So they had Scotch-Brite, and they had Post-it notes, and they have all these technologies that have made them a Fortune 100 company. But the problem is innovation had become, everyone started talking about innovation in the 80s and 90s, and innovation became a completely hackney term. So the question we were looking at was, what does innovation mean to people today and how how is it differentiated in this space? And when we went back to a lot of the brand stories of 3M, of how they how they made these innovative technologies is a lot of them were born from mistakes. So Art Fry, the inventor of the post-it note, was at church. He kept losing his spot. So he wanted to make an adhesive that wasn't really that sticky. And everyone's like, he said, it's not that sticky. That doesn't make sense. And it was the post-it note. In Guard, there was a female engineer at a the time. There weren't many female engineers was mixing chemicals spilled some on her shoe cleaned up went home two weeks later looked down and realized where she spilled on her shoe the rest of her shoe was dirty that part was clean right <laughs> but the problem with those kind of origin stories is you can't go to your customers and say bring us your most challenging problems we have a bunch <laughs> of smart people maybe someday maybe we anyone's. can solve them yeah so we spent a lot of time talking about purposeful inner- innovation right and then we did a lot of spent a lot of time looking at words and we came back to ingenuity so it's they've landed on today in their new like brand positioning is science applied to life because they have all these technologies they they have micro replication and adhesives and all this stuff where they are best in class globally Mm. and their positioning is you come to us with our most difficult problems we have the technologies and the people who will apply them in a way that only 3m can then to solve your problem and that's not only very powerful that mm. builds upon their 130 year old company that builds upon all their core strengths in a unique way that calls solves customer problems and and working on that project is what made me fall in love with brand because so many times brands and afterthought oh yeah we need a strong brand let's just build something together but it, it, if if you get it right it's such a powerful mechanism to differentiate you from your competitors and to cut through all the noise
3: mm. what a great Thank story you, that's yeah, a brilliant story
2: Change, changing changing tack a little bit, Ryan, so the stuff you said paints a quite a depressing picture <laughs> of, of <our> how <laughs> brand is, the esteem in which it's held in, in, in certain sort of big, you used the term industrial, or B2B tech type organizations. How does that change? The pressure, you talked about the pressure on the share price or or the pressure to deliver immediate results. How does it change? What? How do you see it? evolving in in these organizations because clearly it does have a role to play and it can be you know valuable how, how, how is it an education job is it an agency's job is it how, how does that work
0: so well, really good question and all sorts of kind of ways to come at it i think you it, in order to have a good brand you have to be honest with yourself and everyone's going to say oh i'm honest with myself but my, my experience is Everyone's When you're in a business and you're in the day-to-day and you're in the quarterly cycle, you're, you're too close to it. So everyone's gonna say, We're, we have the highest quality. It's, do we? How do you know? Do you measure the quality of our competitors? Or we have the best customer service. Are you sure? Are you measuring it? Like, how do you know you're the best? So I think you really have to be honest. You have to look for all the skeletons and all the closets. And in going through that exercise, it's gonna be very eye-opening. You're gonna realize, look, you're prob- your business probably not, is not as good as you think it is. But you have to get it rock bottom before this real change. Yeah, yeah. And when you take that inventory and you realize you find those problems, I love problems because then I can fix them and make the business better. So I think it's you have to be very honest with yourself. Brands have to be built on authenticity. So it's not just some boring platitudes you put on a wall every every town hall you have with internally. You need to bring in all the disparate stakeholder groups. You have to, a good brand aligns management and it aligns it aligns the investors, it aligns stakeholders, vendors, everyone, and they should also be with you and say yes, that brand seems authentic, right? And the third thing is you can't. When the going gets out, the the, the in my mind, the shirts evidence of a strong brand is when the going gets tough, you don't throw the brand out the window and all those brand values. Like it Hmm. has to really be a part of your DNA. So how do you
2: engender that in the business? How do you build that? How do you build advocacy for that in the business?
0: It it goes back to to having an honest look at the business, right? I'll talk about another client of where I used to work and I brought you guys into, Cinch Home Services, which is the number two home warranty company in North America. And to their credit, before I got there, they used to be called cross-country home warranty. And they rebranded because they saw an opportunity to own a positioning around ease of use. Because anyone who knows anything about home warranties, it's a service contract for 30, 40 pages of legalese. It's very complicated to buy. It's just a challenging product to communicate and, and, and deliver because when something breaks in your home, they come in and fix it, right? It's supposed to take all that complexity off of your shoulders. And they're working very hard investing a lot of resources to live up to that brand positioning, right? So they took their average service contract length from 28 pages down to six and their goal is to get it to, to like less than two, right? right. Cool. Yeah. And they've taken a lot of steps out of the customer journey to make it easier to file a claim and get something fixed. So I think they're a really good example mm. of starting with a brand, having that brand become the halo of who they want to be as a business and then using the brand as a filter when they talk about business strategy when they talk about investment mm. to say hey all this stuff we want to do is it going to end up making our solution more of a cinch for our customers right. because that's ultimately our goal. Oh.
2: So is that coming from the top? Sorry, that's coming from that has to come absolutely. from Absolutely. has to be led.
0: That's absolutely right. Yeah, I I'm, I'm sad Stewart's not here because he's always famous for saying, I forget the statistic, but 80% of customers buy from the first company that's used, That's helpful to them. And that's just such a great statistic because I've gone into organizations where people are just searching for basic information yeah. and you land them on a landing page with a form fill. And it's like you, potential customer, have to give something for me, yeah. me before I'm even gonna. I just want to know what your basic the store opens. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah and, you're, and we it's talk like, a lot like, about that. But gated, gated content—it's like this is you're not you're doing something for you because you want that data, but you're not helping your customer. It's in performance that, yeah. marketing, man. Yeah. That's what it does. I know it's the, your micro conversions, <laughs> isn't it? But that's there was another. There's another stat that Stuart uses, and we off. we use a lot. And that's I think it's, it's an old one from I think it's from Google. It was actually 2011, so it'll be more than this now. But that 57% of the and this is in b2b i think 57 percent of the customer journey is complete before that person will pick up a phone to a salesperson or before there's any doubt and that so understanding what's happening in that space what's your potential customer doing in that space is your website an absolute clusterfuck of product information that is impossible to navigate you're then not going to be like you say the easiest person to buy from you're going to and that's it's about understanding the customer. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I think that's right. And sorry, just one maybe one more thing. I, mm-hmm. I was very fortunate to work for a guy named Mark Braden, who's was next Danaher guy, and he worked worked at BCG. Just a Really bright, smart guy. And when I went to work for Acuity Brands, worked for him, he he said something I'd never heard before, and he said, "I don't really care that much about competition, because if we lead and we lead confidently and we get better every day, everyone else is going to follow us." And I think. Back to your question earlier, Chris, of why is this hard in companies? I think people get over fixated on competition, yeah. benchmarking. It it forces them to follow. It forces people to hesitate. Where if you're confident in your brand, you're confident in your strategy, you're confident in just getting better and dealing well with your customers, you will lead, no force yeah. others to follow. I think that. you're and absolutely right.
2: There's a, a paralysis by analysis, and stuff becomes overly complex. When you're right, it's just lead, be be bold and and do what you do and you're not going to go far wrong.
3: Again, maybe this is, I don't know, it'd be interesting to get your view from a client point of view because we would argue that often your customer doesn't know what state of the art looks like in your space so that the competition isn't necessarily just who you have defined in your own competitive set from looking at the market through a manufacturer lens.
0: So That's so smart. So when I was at Honeywell, again, another great mentor of mine, Rhonda Germany, our chief marketing officer, pushed us really hard to think about segmentation and value proposition. So Honeywell, the business we were in, sold HVAC equipment and thermostats. And I was responsible for North and South America. When we were thinking about all this, we had reams of research on our competitors and their products and all their features. And she said when Ryan, you're responsible for Brazil. When someone in Brazil, lower income level, their house gets too hot, how do you think they deal with it? And I'm like they go to a low end stab this match, she said, no, they open a window. <laughs> yes. And in a lot of places, the answer to solving a problem is people do nothing. So I think there's a lot of these companies fall into the trap of. Rhonda called this making a medium-sized t-shirt. You get all this data. you want to sell as much as possible, so you dumb everything down to let's just water everything down to this unit we can sell the most of. And she was saying good segmentation for this long example, I'm going to make it very short. There's probably a segment for t-shirts of extra large tall. Because you want to look for people, segments that have a high willingness to pay and a low cost to serve. And she's, that's probably NBA players. They probably have a really hard time getting a shirt that fits well. And if they find a shirt that fits well, how much do you think they're willing to pay for it? (laughs) Probably a lot because they're rich. So quit trying to make products that are medium-sized t-shirts do good marketing which always starts with segmentation find the segments that have the most pressing need and are willing to pay for that solution and that's who you focus on instead of trying to go be everything everywhere all at once
2: I want to know Ryan what is it the agencies do that piss you off
0: you can use a good example wow. if you like <laughs> Yeah. There's, there's so many things. I just have to pick one now. <laughs> <laughs>
2: like,
0: Send us a memo. Or there. what
2: kind of things do they do that piss you off or piss clients no, off? What?
0: I think, I think a lot of times bad vendors, obviously not you guys no. will do a bunch of work and charge you a bunch of money and then come back and tell you stuff you already knew. I think sometimes that vendors forget that I'm not, it's the classic, I'm not paying you for your effort. I'm paying for the result. So like bring me real insights, right? And hand in glove with that, I think for vendors and consultants, a lot of times there's they feel there's a pressure to tell you what you want to hear. Mm. Whereas I think that the, the best vendors are really bold and compelling and use data to get me to think differently about the business, right? Mm. So I, I want strategic thought partners. If I have a problem and I'm willing to spend money to bring in people, to help me solve that problem, they have to bring value. I I'm not doing, if I had time and I can do it myself, I'll do it myself. So I need someone who's gonna think differently about the business. And that's why I think marketing automation, people are just gonna drive leads and ops. That's a whole different ball of wax. You pay Mm. them for extra capacity. They come in, they they turn the wheel faster, whatever. I may or may not need that. But I think spending money on brand strategy is almost always money well spent because that outside perspective, as I alluded to earlier, is so critically valuable case studies from similar and different industries always resonate well and then brand although i think everyone thinks they know it yeah really it's really a rare muscle and if you're not thinking about it day in and day out it's hard to be good at brand yeah
3: is there a a lack of definition around some of the the terms is that we use in the world of brand. Do you think that is where some of the suspicion and kind of skepticism comes from sometimes in leadership? I
0: think the problem is twofold. One, it's most executives don't come from a brand background. Mm. So I I can tell you for a fact at 3M, this is actually like hilarious to me. The CEO or CMO I referred to earlier had a PhD in physics Mm. and he was our CMO. So again, it's a chauvinism of, oh, engineers are really smart, they'll figure it out. So I think most CEOs, most senior executives at companies have never even had a marketing role. So it's foreign to them. And a lot of them view marketing honestly as a cost center, not as a profit center. Yeah. And the other issue is by the time for I think related to that, a lot of times people think, hey, I have a brand issue if they go to a good um, strategic partner like you guys, you're going to come back and say, no, you probably have a business strategy issue and brand is the symptom, not the disease. Right. And then they have to be open to, because a lot of times I've seen it where they perceive a problem with brand. They think brand is like this little black box. They can yeah. put it like circle around and just deal with the brand piece. And then when you tell them like, no, you have to change your customer experience. You have to change product delivery. You have to change your product roadmap. They're like, Whoa, I just want to change the brand. Yes. Like, sorry guys, it doesn't work that way. So it's that visionary leadership and really that. The definition of of the role of brand, which I think is really lacking.
3: We challenge our clients to be able to communicate the value of their proposition, the value of their product, really simply to key decision makers that ardent as au okay fait with the technology and the science as they are. So rather than thinking about product managers, project managers, product managers, end users, applications, it's about how do you really how do how can you distill that into something really simple and clearly articulate the value. And arguably, we have to do the same with brand. When you're talking mm. to CEOs that aren't marketeers or aren't brand specialists, we're the experts in the field. So how do you know, it's I think it is a constant challenge to ourselves to say, how are we floating, bringing this conversation to the table in a way that is very clear in terms of defining that value to their business? So it, it isn't seen as an a- asset, yeah. not as That's expense. Yeah, it's a struggle, constant And it struggle. is a, con- yeah.
0: With one more thought that you mm. guys do with that, a lot of your engagements that took me a while to appreciate is, hey, we've got a brand issue, we bring you guys in. And the first thing you do is discovery and talk to all the key stakeholders internally. And every time you've done it, I'm like, I don't know why they're doing this. I know what everyone <laughs> thinks about it. But invariably, everyone says, hey, I know what the brand is. And they come back. 12, you had talked to 12 people. there would be 12 radically different opinions. And you're like, if we internally aren't aligned to what the brand is, how do you think our customers feel and our yeah. stakeholders feel and our partners feel? And I think that's the big aha moment where people go, oh, this brand is not as easy as we thought it was. We probably need some help.
3: Yeah. And mm. more often than not, it's making it—it's making it simpler rather than more complicated, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So it's that's when I mean, that's where that objectivity is key, isn't it?
0: And a, lot of really smart people are uncomfortable with simplicity mm. they think simplicity is the Especially in I'm sure it's misappropriated to the Einstein, but or no, Da Vinci. I think you said that simplicity is the ultimate sophistication, mm. right? I I believe that making complex ideas simple is way harder than keeping complex yeah. ideas complex and it's complex.
2: particularly true with language technical yeah. language and making stuff just easier to consume and read is a big problem it's one and of our values a, it's isn't one, it yeah it's um, one of our uh, values
0: yeah 100% would-
3: anything you think we've not we've missed anything that you would build on in any of that or fling into the conversation before we wrap up
0: the only advice if you, if we talked about this earlier in a potential topic is there comes an inflection point in your career when you get your first budget and your first team and that's generally the first opportunity you have to bring in consultants and I, I know I was like ugh when is it the right time to spend the money to bring in consultants? Does that mean I'm viewed as a failure? Or don't know how to do my job? And in my view, is don't try to be a hero. If you're in out of your depth, focus on what makes you great. If you are uncomfortable with brand, call in the experts. It'll not only it'll not only be a better outcome for your business. That will ultimately make you the hero.
2: Nice. That's a great insight actually like to have the humility or admit the, the, the vulnerability to say knowing what I, you don't know I, or oh, not knowing absolutely. what you because do because I, I do think that is a thing actually i think that what happens in agency client relationships sometimes is if the agency isn't strong enough the client leads the the engagement but the client's not the one with the experience in the task mm. we are we lead the engagement and the client has to be vulnerable or display the humility enough to say you i've called you guys in because you can yeah. do it and i can't so go
3: Lead. That was great. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ryan. It's been a really interesting discussion. We will. Let you get back on the over. golf course. Yeah, let you get back to the golf course. Back to the beach. Is it the beach or the golf course That's
0: today? The plan It's <laughs> uh, golf later. But there's—I don't know if you—you probably don't track the weather in the Atlantic. But there's potentially a huge hurricane barreling down at us. Oh. Hopefully, it turns at the end. Fingers oh, crossed. Man. Oh, stay safe. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be all right. Yeah.
3: Cheers, Ryan.
1: Wow, well, that
2: was interesting. You guys had a good
1: chat.
3: We did. We had a very good chat. It was uh, very interesting, I thought. I
2: thought Julie did a great job <laughs> with 10 minutes notice. No,
1: because no, no, <laughs> I was pushing the business forward.
2: Yeah, he can... was great. He was great. Some really interesting, nice wee anecdotes. He's got good anecdotes, Ryan. He's got a good anecdote game.
3: He does. He's uh...
2: like the 3M stuff. And he. I think he's got some really clear-minded views about how Brian should work in these big B2B orgs. Mm.
1: My takeaway from it, as somebody who wasn't there and listening to it for the first time, was just his confidence in what he knows and how to get there. And especially when getting, obviously I'm looking at this from an agency perspective, and it's actually, it supplements his role rather than diminishes his role to say, look, we're too close to this. And then acknowledging a self-awareness of the strengths and weaknesses Mm. of a marketing person within an organization. And I thought, and I hadn't quite thought of it the way he'd put it. Uh, no, it's I thought it was good. It's a great so point. Yeah I, agree, yeah, I agree. with
3: that. And to be fair to Ryan, I think he has always been very good at identifying that. Even in our experience working with him and saying this is where we need a, a kind of outside opinion on this, and it's the process has always been very much uh, working in partnership. I did enjoy when we were talking about kind of features wars and the kind mm-hmm. of the down that rabbit hole when you're thinking about positioning, etc. And just his again his take on. And the need for it to be focused on how it solves a customer problem rather than just how smart your tech is. And just to have that uh, reflected back from a client point of view, I think, is quick. Because that's certainly one of the things that we've experienced oh, time and again. Isn't it? It? What's yeah. the
1: problem? People don't buy things unless they're solving a problem. Mm. They're not buying it just because it's nice. Mm.
2: Yeah, it takes that, the mindset of the, to, 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 to flip and think about it from the customer point of view. Mm. Yeah. And that's why right, you need people like Ryan in these organizations. Because yeah, it's so time. important that you do think about that.
3: No, I thought he was great. I
2: thought he was. He was great. great
3: And thanks, Ryan. Set a high bar for our next guest. Thanks, Ryan.
2: He he must be one of the four. Yeah, (laughs) listeners. The other three. You're up next.
1: (laughs) Please make yourself. (laughs) Please make yourself known.
3: (laughs) 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 Answers on a postcard to good. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, then. Bye Bye, bye. That was fun.